Survival Podcast. I'm excited about this one. Uh, Miles Legoze, and hopefully he can correct me if I said his name wrong. I think it's the right way to pronounce it. Uh, will be on with us in just a minute. Miles is an amazing dude. He was a filmmaker, a United States Marine Corps uh, documentarian that was behind the lines for, uh, I think it was 2010 to 2011, sometime in that range in Afghanistan. And, you know, put to work by the military to document things for, for their purposes and managed to get basically all the footage off the cutting room floor, the stuff that you're not supposed to see. He made a documentary, critically acclaimed documentary, back in 2018 called Combat Obscura. Uh, he has a book coming out in just a, uh, like a, a month and a half from now. We'll be talking about that, too, uh, further documenting what it was really like behind the lines. Uh, I was not heavily involved with any kind of combat or anything in my military uh, time. But I was in the United States Army for a few years back in the early 90s. I did one really long deployment. And one thing I can tell you for a fact is a lot of kind of the the cutting up, the fact that you're sending people out into the world who are in some levels of adolescence and some of the stuff that goes on, you know, not during combat, but people keeping their heads, it's it's completely spot on and it's not new. And so this is going to be a fantastic interview. And if you really want to understand, and I think that's a big reason, Miles can speak for himself when I bring him on. I think it's a big reason he's done this. I think people that cheer things on need to understand what they're cheering on and understand the sacrifices that are made beyond the kind of glory that's presented to you. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk to him about that in a minute. Before we do, I want to cover our two sponsors of the day really quick with y'all. Sponsor of the day number one today is Above Phone. Um, when I had Romero Romani on to talk about his product and the product suite that goes with it, I decided instantly I was going to make room for him as a sponsor. I don't bring new sponsors on often. You guys know that. The technology that we live with today is great, but it's being used in ways that are not necessarily in our best interest. You can take back your communications from big tech and all the tracking that goes on uh, by both the phone companies and the app makers as well. With Above Phone, remember, they are a sponsor, and they are also a supporter of the members program that I have called MSB. And that, that gets you 75 bucks off any of the phones available at Above Phone, and a membership's 50 bucks. So they are a great supporter. Definitely check those guys out. Um, next up today is RidgeWallet.com. I've been working with Ridge now for about five years. Uh, they're a fantastic company. They started out there pretty much just a wallet. They did that with a Kickstarter. Um, doesn't look – they've changed up their – this – I don't really know what's going on here. They've got – I guess they've got a, a gig going with uh, with uh, a car maker or something there on their front page right now. But this is the product that they brought to me first, the minimalist wallet. I still carry it today. You've been carrying it since they sent me my first one. I got rid of my billfold. And now they're like a full-on EDC company. Tons of really cool stuff. Watches, rings, bags, you know, really cool stuff. And they do a discount 10% across the board on all products at RidgeWallet.com for our members as well. So with that, let's go ahead and get our a special guest on the show, Mr. Miles Lugose. And 
Miles, did I uh, did I get your name right, sir? Almost. Uh, it's Legozi. Legozi. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm going to blame that on the uh, the woman at NBC who said your name and I copied it instead. Yeah. <laughs> instead of my inability to read. Um, but I'm I'm really happy to have you on today. Could I get you to start off with instead of going right into what went on in Afghanistan with your job in the Marine Corps? What made you, as a young man, decide you were going to join the military in the first place? Because much like you, I joined very young. I was 17 and still in high school when I swore, and I had to have my dad sign for me so that I could join. And and that always interests me when somebody very young, right out of school, decides to go serve their country in the military. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a great question. I mean, I'm, and thank you for having me. Um yeah, I, I think uh, when you're 18, your brain has not fully developed yet, <laughs> and uh, you, you you're pushing the boundaries. You're testing the limits of society and who you are and your identity, your place in society. And um, so, contrary to you know popular opinion, I think it's not it's not a lot of gung ho patriotic kids. It's a lot of kind of um, uh, angst ridden, kind of rebellious. I had like a lot of kids had police records. Um, I remember back, probably back in your day, they still had that, that program where if you were convicted of a crime or a felony, the judge would say, all right, do you want to join the Marines or do you want to, <laughs> you want to go to jail? Right. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, just go to war, go to jail. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of like that. It's, um, it's a lot of kids who are, are looking to um, uh, test themselves, maybe maybe even punish themselves because they don't feel like men yet, you know? And um, I kind of, I, I was in that category, except that um, in the Marine Corps, especially kids who joined the infantry in the Marines, those some of those guys are looking to go get some trigger time and, and to go get some... Because, you know, when we were when I enlisted in 2000, uh, 2008, we'd already been at war for seven years. So we knew we knew the war was not going. Both wars were not going very well. So you had a lot of kids that were just looking to go down range and uh, try to define themselves, you know, in a society that felt sort of fake to me. To me, school felt fake. I didn't want to go to college. Everyone felt fake. I was I was sort of like a Holden Caulfield type, um, you know, everybody's phony, that kind of thing. Um, and so I thought if I join the Marines and go to war, I will have um, I will have something under my belt. And it's that kind of uh, it's that kind of touristic attitude, I think, especially on the on, on, on for American boys uh, that largely defines uh, the military, especially the war during that time. I, I would tend to agree. I was uh, in a really small town with no real opportunities and didn't want to go to college. Yeah. You know? And uh, maybe I would go someday. So they offered me college money in return for my enlistment. They said they would let me lurk, work on really big trucks and they would let me jump out of airplanes. <laughs> And I would get to play with guns and explosives. And, you know, they, they did all, they did do all that. They also sent me to places like Honduras for six month deployments and things like that, living in a tent. Um, but it, it did, it did. I, I, this is where I'm at. There's a lot of things I don't really 
remember fondly about the military, and I really don't like a lot of things that are being done today. But I have admitted many times on the air, I think it probably saved my life because it gave me a sense of direction and it did give me that starting point. Yeah, and I, w- I would say that um, you're spot on. I think I think the Marine Corps gave me some tools, but they also fucked me up and they also fucked up my a lot of things in my life uh, that I, I probably would have been more adjusted had I not gone through it. Yes, you're right. They give you discipline. They give you structure. They give you camaraderie, a, bro- a sense of brotherhood and a, a sense of belonging because you literally are a prisoner. You're a slave, right? You have to be somewhere at a certain time every morning. Your account, your every action is accountable for. So they do give you. So when you're a crazy 18 year old, uh, ex-con, like, <laughs> you know, like future criminal, right? Uh, yes. They, they like prison. Yes, it gives you a routine. It gives you a sense of uh, structure and all that, which is which is uh, which is great. But they also feed you with a lot of um, uh, for in the parlance of our time, like toxic behavior. Right. So it, it was uh, it was a lot of sexism. It was a lot of kill centrism. You know, we're going to go kill uh, these people because they're the enemy because they look like this. Uh, it was a lot of um, just kind of bro mentality, right? That 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 stays with you, even if even a lot of guys that didn't uh, actually go to war, you know, they were still fucked up because of the culture um, of the Marine Corps, especially. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. And I'll just let you let you know, Miles, that what I'm doing is I'm muting our mics on both sides because I'm getting feedback. So. If you go to talk over me and you're not heard, it, it ain't because I did it on purpose. I'm just dealing with this technical issue. After 15 years, I've gotten pretty good at it. Um, yeah, I would I would agree with that, too. What, I, what I'm really interested in is you ended up being a combat photographer. And, again, I joined back in 1989. I joined the Army. And one of the pitches that the Army made was, we'll give you the job you want if you have the test scores, and nobody else will. So I'm wondering how you ended up with that uh MOS in the Marine Corps is that you know is that thing changed or did it just work out that way or how did you end up with that job I saw a full metal jacket <laughs> I saw a full metal jacket uh the main character private joker uh is a combat correspondent and his job is to take photos and uh write stories that are basically propaganda for for the military so I saw that and I fell in love with this character and, and his kind of his, you know, smart. Like, I was like, wow, you can still be detached from the system while you're in the system. And so that was uh, that's why I chose combat camera. And, I, you know, I, I just asked my recruiter, uh, you know, he was trying to get me to be a cook or, or some shit. And uh, <laughs> I was like, no, I'm, I'm not signing anything unless I get this job, uh, combat camera. And so he said, all right. And he made it happen. And, um, yeah, basically you, you, once you go through boot camp, then you get your, you go to what's called uh DINFO's defense information school in, uh, in Fort Meade, Maryland. And they train you up how to use a camera. And, um, yeah, it's basically like a crash course in journalism, but like from, you know, pro military, like, kind of very uh, cookie cutter type stuff. 
Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what was your role? Like, once you got through your school and they sent you out to do your job, did you go straight into uh, Afghanistan? Did you do anything else first? And then when you got in country, what was your, your role there? Yeah, so uh, the, the, no, the, the first place I got sent was Okinawa, Japan. And um, out there, it was basically filming uh, change of command ceremonies, a lot of handshake ceremonies between the Japanese military and uh, the Marines. And then going to like Thailand and doing joint training exercises, sometimes uh, humanitarian relief. Like, you know, anytime there was something good the military was doing, I was, you know, I was sent out there to, to film that. So we were if we built a school in the middle of bumfuck Bangladesh, right? I would be there to film that. We filmed, you know, building two schools maybe. Um, and then it wasn't until I got sent to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, in Jacksonville, Jacksonville, North Carolina, that uh, that I got deployed to Afghanistan, and that was in 2011. And basically, um, at that point, after 10 years of war. My job was to showcase uh, the Afghan National Army, to show people back home that uh, the ANA, as we call Afghan National Army, the ANA was a dependable fighting force, that they would be able to um, fight back against the Taliban once we left, because we were planning, at that point, we were already planning on leaving. And, um, and of course, to get uh, hearts and minds photos and, and imagery. So um, talking with the Afghan locals, the elders, giving candy to kids, giving volleyballs to kids, giving soccer balls, um, kids laughing with Marines, you know, on patrol, that kind of stuff. That, that, was, that was the big thing. They didn't want a lot of combat because they wanted to show that, hey, we were winning. And we're going to hand over, it's over now, we're going to hand it over to the Afghan army, which of course uh, did not go so well. <laughs> and we knew it at the time that it was, it, was not, it was not going well. You know, I had a lot of contacts that were in country in that time frame and all the way up until we left. And there wasn't a single one of them that backed up the idea that things were going well, that the Afghan army was going to stand up, and it wasn't going to completely to total fucking shit when we pulled out. And so I never believed any of it. I took a lot of flack for saying it. You're not patriotic. You're not a real American. You've turned like all kinds of hateful shit just for speaking the truth. It's happening to me now as I do an analysis of what's going on in Ukraine. And it seems like people are hardwired that if you say anything bad about your country, that you're not a patriot, where I think we should be the first people to stand the fuck up and speak the truth. Hundred percent, hundred percent. This whole um, thank you for your service. I support the troops. Um, you don't, you know, you should only support the troops. And I say this with all due respect. You should only support the troops if you support what they're doing. So you know, a lot of Americans will say, "Oh, it's it's the politicians' fault." It's the general's fault. Okay, well, I still I still joined voluntarily. There's no draft, right? After Vietnam ended, people people treated uh, the guys returning like they were like they were criminals, and these guys didn't even have a, a lot of them didn't have a choice. They were drafted. 
my generation, your generation, we all voluntarily signed up. And it is not, it is not wrong not just to question the government's motives and the military industrial complex and the contractors. Great. Question them, too. But also question the young people that are going in to the military. For whatever reason, uh, you should question them. You should question their motives. There's no problem with that. And if they truly believe in what they're doing and they truly believe in what they're fighting for, so be it. Then you should let them go if they truly believe that. But a lot of kids that I, that I was served with, including myself, we didn't believe in what we were doing. We were going in uh, as as uh, to get our man card, as I say. You know, we just wanted we just wanted that man card because there's a there's a cultural capital when the society doesn't question the people who served. There's a social capital for us returning home, where we uh, social currency, right? That that comes with the baggage of war. The trauma of war. Oh, I, I, I was in the shit. You know, I was out there. And coming back and having people just buy you a beer and say, thank you for your service and not engaging critically with what we did and, and, and what we experienced. Then that's a problem because it just, it just perpetuates. If you, if you, if you ignore the truth from, from veterans, it perpetuates the same military industrial complex, uh, that we have going on. So with that in mind, I know that there was a lot of, um, let's say, uh, unhappiness from the U.S. Marine Corps when Combat Obscura was released. Um, is there any of the footage that was in that documentary? I don't even know if any other footage got out sideways or whatever that you kind of say, I wish I wouldn't have shot that or I wouldn't have released that. Or you're like, this is the truth. People should know. Oh, yeah. I mean, when when you're so you think as a cameraman that you're going to have, you're going to have this like third degree of separation this kind of distancing effect. And you do because you're looking through the camera, right? You're looking through the viewfinder. It feels like you're watching almost like you're watching a movie. And, um, what actually happens is you kind of instigate you, you cause like certain things to happen, right? Because I'm a millennial. People forget these are millennial kids, right? Like people don't think, oh, millennials uh, are veterans. No, it was all millennials, and we grew up in a in a in a digital transformation of society, right? So in everything, we were everyone had a camera out there. Everyone wanted to film stuff, and when you have cameras everywhere, it becomes sort of a like performative, um, almost like you're acting out your favorite war films, right? And so. When I would get to, because I moved around a lot, um, and I would get to a new platoon, and um, they would say, oh, shit. You know, some of them were like, get the fuck out. You know, you're a snitch. You know, get out of here. But some of them were like, oh, shit, combat cameras here. We got to get into some shit. We got to get into a firefight, right? And so they would go looking for things, and I would be there kind of egging them on, right, with the camera. and. and so, yeah, there's a weird feedback loop, I think, where they want to they, they want to get into action, but then they want to see themselves in action as well to kind of reconfirm their identity as Marines. So one of the things I did getting ready for this interview is I went and I found this uh, little NBC. I think it was NBC or CBS. I have it linked in the audio notes for folks that want to take a look at it later. 
and they interviewed several prior service Marines, asking them what they thought about uh, Combat Obscura. And one of them was like, I think he was actually a priest now, and he's like, I'm glad that he showed that, because that's real. There was another dude, and he said something. He had your job. He did the same job. And he said, I never videoed anything that I wouldn't have wanted my colonel to see. And my instant thought was, well, that's bullshit. And there is a certain kind of role-playing, and you can be a role-playing to the positive side, giving command, giving, um, you know, AFES did all the, uh, the broadcasting and stuff. And when I was in Honduras, we weren't there for combat. We were building this huge road uh, up to uh, basically two places with no road. We were building a road in between them. When we got done it, we built schools. It's as, you know, beneficial as you can. But there was also a, just a, a tremendous amount of bullshit and a lot of engineers going, they don't have a way to maintain this road. It's not paved and it's going to fall apart in 10 years after we leave. And I'd been there about four months when a camera crew came in to do it. But when I was asked to be on camera, I painted the rosiest damn picture of everything. We're helping these people. Like, I did exactly what I knew they wanted me to do. And as soon as I walked away, I said, well, that's bullshit, you know, and it, I think that kind of thing can go both ways. And I think it's very unrealistic. And honestly, the thing that stuck in my crawl the most in watching that little eight minute piece was that dude saying he wouldn't film anything. He didn't want his colonel to see. Well, then you're not doing your fucking job, in my opinion. Yeah, I guess he like that guy is, <clears throat> you know, um, hasn't gotten his brain back clearly from the government yet. So he's still drinking that Kool-Aid. Um, I don't know why they brought him on. Like the priest. So here's the thing. You can tell who was actually in combat in that interview. And you can tell who was actually with the infantry because the infantry is a different breed. You, you got to understand there's, I mean, you know, there's, there's thousands of jobs, hundreds, thousands of jobs that you can do in the army that you can do in the Marines, the Navy, all that shit. Um, but the infantry, is the nar like those guys are a different they are they are separated from the rest of the of the MOSs. Uh they have their own barracks, they have their own chow, they have their own lifestyle. And the infantry is a different breed. And they, those guys are jaded as fuck. They've been on multiple deployments. They are on the front lines. They hate them most of them hate the Marines. They hate uh the war. And then you have guys like uh who you're talking about was uh was interviewed and you can tell he wasn't really there and that he's just kind of like still towing the party line right and then the priest guy is like no i was there and this actually exactly represents my experience yes people yes guys were using drugs yes guys were using racial slurs yes guys hated their officer they hated their command they hated the marines they had multiple NJPs and uh, they were sick of it and so I made the movie for, for guys like that who actually were in combat and um, experienced the worst of, of the military in the war yeah definitely and that's I thought too this is this is a guy that probably did the type of stuff you started out doing mostly or did the kind of things the camera crews that came into our camp in Honduras did you know, schools and roads and stuff like that, and everything's wonderful, and you should be a soldier too. 
Um, this has hit me so much over the years. You said he didn't get his brain back. There, that is the thing, and it takes time. Even if you weren't a combat troop, like you, and it might even be worse. Yeah, I was a mechanic. I did a couple of deployments with like combat engineers and stuff like that. And until I was kind of in after a time, I was treated like dog shit by those guys. You're not one of us, you know. Um, but uh, earlier this year, I was actually contacted by a member of the Army Golden Knights and asked if I wanted to do a jump with them. And I'm like, that's a bucket list thing. I, you know, those guys are the best of the best at what they do. Initially, I said yes, and I thought about it for like two weeks, talked to my wife about it. I said, the only thing they do is recruit. And I'm sorry, the state we're in right now, I can't be, and I had to tell, and I was very nice to the guy, but I had to tell the guy, I'm sorry, I've declined, I have to decline. And they had already put the paperwork in and got me approved and all. It hurt me to say no, but I think we're at a point now where if we're going to tell the truth, we need to tell the truth all the time. Yeah, I, that takes a lot of integrity. I, I mean, no one's trust me. No one from the military is going to ask me to <laughs> to do any like any more recruiting stuff for them. So I don't have that problem. But I understand completely your your hesitation and your um and your also your uh, first instinct to to do it, right? You know, because hey, man, the military is sexy sometimes. Fascism is sexy. You know, there's a reason Hitler rose to power. They had nice uniforms. They, they, you know, it, it's a cultural phenomenon where sometimes uh, being part of the system and being in uniform, and being and going sent to combat, it's extremely glamorous. You know, it has a, it has an allure. Um, and so, yeah, it took me. It took like probably like yourself. It took me a long time to uh, shut that part of me off. That where I was telling people, uh, oh yeah, I just got out of the Marines. It's like, bro, you've been out for five years. You can't, you can't say that anymore. But it has, it, it, once you, it's like going to prison. You know, people get out of prison and they miss prison. They miss prison, you know? And it's the same thing, uh, with the military. So yeah, I mean, you're, you're making me remember the movie Shawshank Redemption and they talked about being institutionalized. So when I got out, again, I'm not, I was in during Desert Storm and all, but nothing like what went on here. Um, I spent most of my time in Central America. Uh, but when I got out for like the first three or four weeks, I started hanging out with friends I had from high school and stuff. And I couldn't even deal with them. I, and I couldn't go to the freaking grocery store without wanting to kick everybody's ass because they didn't know how to stand in line right. And I finally realized, like, dude, you're the problem. And I ended up walking from Pennsylvania to New Hampshire on the Appalachian Trail and being completely alone and rebooting my brain before I came down to Texas and started building a new life because I couldn't function. And that's no combat, no infantry, no Marine Army mechanic. And so I can only imagine what that's like for someone that was in the Marine Corps, which is a whole new level of mental fuck with in your brain and reprogramming. And then to be in the Marine Corps infantry and be in active combat, like I can only imagine that's got to be a hundred times worse. Um, I don't know about a hundred times worse. I knew, I knew a lot of uh, army infantry guys that were in some heavy shit and they, they, you know, the training, the train, both infantries, the army and the Marine Corps infantry have very, I think have very similar training and very similar mindset. Uh, same culture, I think. But yeah, uh, uh, 
in general, I'd say the Marine Corps is much more like brainwashy, like pound you over the head with 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 uh, the ideology. And so even like I said, even if you didn't go to combat, which I did, um, you still have a layer of like PTSD where it's like, like you said, why aren't they staying? Why aren't they standing in line? Right. Why? Why doesn't this person have any spatial awareness? That's like a military term. Spatial awareness, right? <laughs> you know, like, and, and so, like, you come back with this anger, you know, this kind of, um, yeah, just anger. Like, I don't, it didn't happen for me until I came back from Afghanistan, but I can, you, I could still see it in guys who hadn't, hadn't gone overseas, where you just have this disconnect from other people, much like, uh, much like Shawshank Redemption, you know? Yeah, indeed. Um, how did you get access to all this footage? Like, because I know they're not happy about it. So h- how does that work? Um, did Was it an oversight? I mean, how'd you get, how'd you get it all? So do you mean access uh, to the people I was filming or access to the footage itself once I'd filmed it? I'm talking about the footage itself. Like, so when you left, you still had all this footage. You just take. I mean, how how did that work? Well, I don't want I don't want to get too into it for legal reasons. But um, the uh, the main thing that the point is, I think, the point that should be made is that the military is not organized, right? We call it <laughs> we call it a disorganization, um, and. Uh, we had so we had guys bringing back hashish. We had guys from Afghanistan. We got we had a guy who tried to smuggle some dead Taliban AK-47s. We had guys trying to bring back grenades on the plane, right? So that's the kind of the stuff that they were looking for. They didn't know. And my job as a cameraman, I wasn't with. I wasn't an infantry guy. I, you know, I was separate from them. I was just attached to them. So they didn't they didn't really give a shit what I was doing. They had other, you know, there's other moving parts in their mind. So it wasn't a thing where they were um, going through people's footage because a lot of people had cameras. No, they were looking for guns. They were looking for drugs. We had, you know, bomb sniffing dogs before we got on the plane back. So, you know, that's the kind of stuff they're that makes perfect sense because, yeah, disorganization is not new. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that. Did, did you hear from the government or DOD or the Marine Corps itself, like after the fact or, or what have you, or during production, uh, like we don't like this or don't do this or anything like that? Yeah, so I, I, I did my due diligence, you know, once I um, had put the film together. And uh, I hit up a, a writer named Phil Clay. Was, uh, he wrote redeployment, and um, I said, "Hey, man, I have all these." You know, he was he was actually he had the same job as me, very similar job. And I said, "Hey, I, you know, I have this footage. I'm making a feature film out of it. Do you know? Uh, is there any route I can go through that doesn't deal with the Marine Corps itself? Because I knew if, if I sent it to the Marines, it would just start a whole shitstorm." So he said, "Yeah." So the the DoD Pentagon has this. Um, pre-publication and uh, offices like pre-publication and security review where they just go through uh, books and movies and all kinds of shit. 
from like former service members and they say, and they just look for classified material. And so I said, Hey, that sounds great. I know none of my stuff is classified. It's not showing, uh, you know, um, top secret information. It's not showing, um, special access people or like, or, uh, special weapons that aren't released to the public. So I said, fine, I'll do that. I sent it to the Pentagon. They reviewed it. They said, yeah, none of this is classified, but, um, we had to send it to the Marine Corps to verify. <laughs> so either, you know, it obviously it made its way to the Marine Corps. And then I started getting hit up by NCIS and they wanted to know names and they wanted to know who this guy was smoking weed over here. They wanted to know who this guy was and, uh, and how I got, you know, same questions you're asking. How, how did you get the footage? Like, how'd you do that? What camera did you shoot it on? Was it our camera? Because that was their, their main, uh, their main legal argument. Because here's the thing, all the footage that combat cameras shoots as a, as you are a government employee, all that stuff is public domain per the 1970, whatever copyright act, the government can't have copyright over stuff that is not classified. So, um, their main argument was, wait, which cam- which camera were you using? Because if it was their camera, they would have proprietary ownership or something. I, I, it was so long ago. It was 20, this is like 2018. I can't remember the exact details. But that was the, the legal argument that they were making was, he sh- hey, man, he used our equipment, so he can't, like, he can't release it because we own that. And it's, but it's like, yeah, but is it classified? And they would be like, no. Okay. I mean, basically, like, let's say I knew it existed and they had it. I could have put in a FOIA request for it, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Please continue. I'm just, I'm dealing with the mic muting thing. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, yeah. So that was, so they started, um, they started calling my wife and they started calling me and they're like, hey, you need to come talk to us. And I was like, do, do I need to? Uh, am I like legally obligated to, or is that just, do you just want more info? And um, eventually I got the, um, so I was at Columbia University in New York, and uh, they have, Columbia is one of the biggest free speech bastions of, of the universities. And, you know, they have a huge First Amendment uh, law group there called the, the Knight Institute. And they've worked, you know, they work with the military a lot to release stuff that the public should know about what the military is doing, but they don't. And like you said, I, if you don't know what you're looking for, you can't submit a FOIA. So all, there's so there's so much combat camera footage that guys shot downrange that has not been released. Not because the government's like hiding it. It's because people don't know what to look for. They don't have... You need to have a special, you need to know the VIPN number, the VIP, like the serial number of this shot, of this footage, in order for the uh, the military to release it. So there there are stuff, I can't tell you the kind of footage I've seen. Like I, one of my jobs in Okinawa, Japan, was to go through Fallujah footage from Iraq, right? And, and archive it. And this kind of this stuff like war crimes, dead, you know, just really the most brutal, intense footage you'd ever seen. Just ending up in a trash bag. 
in some warehouse, right? And uh, and so I uh, once the Knight Institute, the the First Amendment group, got involved. Um, the military backed down because they realized we can't bleed him financially. These guys are taking him on pro bono. So if we take him to court, it's just going to be more publicity for the film. And so that was there. They, they backed off after that. So for those on the video, I am uh, running the, the, just basically as though it was B-roll, so the, the trailer uh, of, of the, the movie with it muted so it's not coming over us and just gives you an idea of what we're talking about. With, with all of this behind you, uh, Miles, do you, as you look at our military and the politics that get involved and what have you, and you look at it, what potentially could erupt into some level of a freaking world war, do you think that our military is actually well prepared to take on like force on force engagement with militaries that are equivalent to us? Because a lot of this stuff that we've been doing for 20 years is very small scale fighting. One of the people that I listen to a lot as an analyst is Colonel Douglas McGregor. Uh, you know, he says because of all the BS and politics involved and the way that we're doing a lot of things right now, we are not really preparing our soldiers to deal with combat on that level. And I think we can both agree we certainly aren't preparing them to deal with combat emotionally and mentally either. Well, I think so. There's a reason, right? There hasn't been a World War Three. You look, World War One came. Uh, so World War Two came like what, thirty years after World War One? Pretty quick. Like people were like, "Oh shit, World War One! It's not, you know, it's the end of the world." And then thirty years later, we did it again. But now we're we're almost a century later, and there's been no World War Three, and it's all been uh, proxy wars in Vietnam, Korea, uh, Afghanistan, the Gulf War, uh, Iraq. It's all these places that don't have nukes. And that's because of a simple thing called mutually assured destruction. So it's hard for me to imagine a conventional uh, World War III with a superpower like Russia or China that has nukes simply because... Uh, we would blow each other to to apocalypse, right? It would be the end of the world. So um, what I see, I don't see a World War III situation, even though I think uh, the, 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 the clock is ticking with, with what's happening in Ukraine. We need to look for um, a peaceful solution to that situation and stop just trying to wear the Russian army down, right? Because it's just going to be another, it's going to be an endless war. And it could resort to nuclear weapons if Putin's crazy enough. And so we need to look for uh, some kind of diplomatic, you know, solution to that. But as far as like going to, you know, going into World War Three, uh, it just doesn't it, it doesn't seem possible. Now, to answer your question, do you do I think our troops would be able to handle it? I don't know. I don't know. That, that's a cultural issue. So that's like we spent 20 years in Afghanistan fighting dudes in flip flops with like World War Two era weapons. Right. And we got the snot kicked out of us. I mean, we didn't you know, we didn't it wasn't actually it wasn't exactly like uh, we took a lot of casualties, though we did. 
but they were smarter than us, and they they were playing rope-a-dope, and they were just waiting, right? And they were fighting guerrilla tactics, planning landmines, doing pop shots, uh, snipers, you know, and they just wore us down. And that's how they won. So I think to answer your, your question, uh, yeah, if we can't, if there was a hypo, hypothetical situation where um, we had to fight a large-scale conventional war with another country that didn't have nukes, um, I don't think it would go very well. <laughs> Yeah, I would tend to agree. And I mean, I look at what's going on in Ukraine and, and basically it's like high tech warfare meets World War One. You got the Russians entrenched in a three level defense and both sides are using precision drones now. And in, in those days, like World War One days, the snipers were taking out their snipers. Now what they're doing is they're using these drones to hunt equipment and men both and then precision striking them. And that's kind of the low tech stuff. That, that, that Russia's using. And even if it wasn't with Russia, there's no reason to believe that a large scale army might not get that technology. And it's, it, it, it's a, it's an absolute freaking mess in my opinion. And I don't know. I, I look at it and go, does it serve us interest for us to be involved with this right now? And I, I can't say yes to that. I really can't. I don't like what's going on either way. But I don't know that us sending our own troops into that makes any sense at all. And if that's going to – talk about something that's a catalyst to ending up in an actual nuclear exchange. That's, that's it. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, at, at, at first um, when Russia invaded, I was sort of – I was on the fence about it. And I was like, look, these, this is one situation where the, the good guys, right – the good guys actually want us to help and they want to keep their country and they're defending their country. And uh, so I was, I was kind of like, okay, the least we can do is give them money, right? No boots on the ground. Cause like I said, that, that would probably resort that would probably result in a nuclear war. But um, as the war has dragged on, and like you said, you, you see this footage. I mean, you see that this like, Trench warfare, like World War One type fighting, but everyone's got a GoPro. You know, it's like World War One GoPros and drones. And what what the camera? The camera was initially used by the military as a weapon. And it's the camera has always been a weapon, either misinformation for surveillance, for target acquisition, etc. Whatever. Um. So you see all this footage coming out, and it's just like Jesus Christ. You know. And so I, at a certain point, we have to just stop poking the bear or just have to stop sending these guys in to die. And we have to work. We have to work with Putin, just like we have to work with, uh, in my opinion, the Taliban, because Afghanistan's facing uh, a humanitarian crisis because we pulled out all the money. You have to understand all the money the Taliban had was from us through back channels. We'd fund the government, and then through corruption, that money would circle back to the Taliban. We, oh, we're building a bridge over here. Well, you got to pay off the Taliban so they don't blow you up, so they don't blow up the bridge, right? It's that Vietnam, like, circle of just mad, like, just, you know, futility. And so we have to stop looking at every, at our enemies as just full enemies, and we have to be realists. 
We have to be realists, right? The war in Ukraine is not going to come to an end until we stop uh, funding it, I think, until we stop um, diplomatic solutions and treating Russians as human beings because we did, we committed the same war crimes that they did. Iraq was was a, an illegal invasion, in my opinion, in a lot of people's opinions, actually. And you could argue the same for Afghanistan, though I, I know a lot of people don't. But Iraq was the same fucking thing as Ukraine. We illegally went in there on, on uh, false pretenses. We lied to the public. And we fucked up that country for the next hundred years, probably. And so, you know, to throw stones and to be like, oh, Putin is, you know, the Russians are the bad guys. Putin's probably the bad, is a bad guy. But the average Russian soldier is not a bad guy. He's being conscripted into the army. So we have to come to some kind of diplomatic solution. One of my best friends was in the Russian army for quite a few years and, and now lives actually in UAE as a consultant to the royal family security. And no, the man's not a bad man just because he's he's Russian. Um, let, let's let's move on from there because you and I aren't going to solve this. I just wanted your, your overall opinion as someone that's actually seen combat. Let's talk about your book. Um, I. I've read part of it. They sent me an advanced copy. I have not completed it. But again, like I said during my intro, there there's a truth that rings through. It. What made you decide to go beyond the documentary, though, and actually write the book? Um, uh, so I think the the movie, the documentary was kind of more of a political statement. It was like, hey. You've been you've been fed this misinformation about not just about the war, but about what the military is like, what the Marine Corps is like. And so I wanted to show people the truth and just hit them over the head with it. Right. And it has that blunt force kind of quality to it. The book. To understand the movie, you have to read the book because the book. The book is a story about who these guys are, where they come from. And what happened to us after we came back, right? And the movie doesn't touch any of that stuff. So um, I, I just felt like it was an unfinished job, basically. And tell Hold on. That's, that's that feedback I'm talking about. Uh, tell people, you know, kind of outline the story that's in the book beyond just it's about, you know, about the war and about the aftermath. So the story is uh, it's about a misguided youth, myself, who joins the Marines uh, to be a cameraman. And um, and then the hell whole like kind of experience being put through the meat grinder of the military industrial complex. My, and then my job trying to polish a turd. Right. Like filming, filming combat and filming guys saying, yeah, fuck this country, fuck the military. And then being like, OK, but now you have to say this right and i i was i was part of the problem i was part of the reason the war lasted so long because of the footage that i was i was uh embellishing to a degree you know cutting out my superiors would be like oh you can't show you can't show him cursing no you got to cut that out you can't show that marine smoking a cig oh he's smoking a cigarette you got to cut that out oh he that marine's dead oh he's dying he got shot no you got to cut that out and so it was my job to misinform people 
and 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 the book goes into the the experience that dual kind of um split personality that I had but it also deals with um the aftermath and the kind of disconnect because after after Vietnam there was the same uptick in like um distrust uh you know um uh a lot of things white supremacy and uh it was because you had you we were we were sent into a a war an unjust war for so long that of course that's going to have an effect on how people relate to each other how people view the government how um how just how we view reality right and nihilism like the sense of this growing feeling of like nihilism in the country um it, it goes into all that stuff and and mo- but mostly at its at its root it's it's a human story about um about the guys that I was with and and, and that and all that yeah i think there's just being in a place that doesn't have the comforts that people take for granted here lets you see a raw level of humanity that most people would be uncomfortable with and pretty soon you become in a weird way comfortable with it if that makes sense and here's what i mean like when we were in honduras about two months into it turned out they had shitloads of care packages in these warehouses all over the place because they expected the gulf war to go longer than it did and some of this stuff was going to some of it was probably already expired but they just decided well let's just start sending this shit to anywhere people are deployed right now to get rid of it right and there was candy and shit like that and, and we would do shit like take a pack of nanolators, tape a U.S. dollar to it, and throw it into a group of kids and watch them fight over it. I'm not proud of that, but I'll admit that I was part of it, that we did stuff like that. Uh, or we'd throw an MRE out or whatever. It, it like I look back at that and go, what kind of sick fucking asshole does that to kids that will fight over food because they're actually fucking hungry? And it's a sick fucking asshole who was put into a position with no, like, there was no counseling. Like, when we went in, it was like, look, don't, don't go hooking up with the natives and having kids. That was, pr- and if you do, you're in deep shit. And stay in the camp unless we tell you to go out when we tell you to go out the way that we tell you to go out. That was pretty much the entire briefing. You know, there was none of this, like, you know, drive, just driving into the place. It was so remote. It's a place called Agwan River Valley. You know, little naked kids run through the street covered in dirt and shit like that. There was no, and there was no deprogramming, right? No, like, okay, you guys just were in here. It's like, okay, go back to Panama and go back to your regular job. And, and, you know, combat has to be so much worse than that. I can't understand, but I can empathize, I guess, is what I'm saying. No, I, I, and, you know, one of the chapters in my book goes into Japan. And even even a, a uh, first world, quote unquote, first world uh, country like Japan, um, we because we're occupiers, when you're an occupier, you have a certain gaze at the way you look at the local. Right. Like you're kind of better than them, like they're kind of there for your amusement, like yours or your sexual desires. Right. It's very it's 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 still the same way. Like you said, don't fuck anybody. Don't rape anybody. Right. But there's no other cultural um, training that goes into these places that we go. And so you go, you arrive in these places with a a subconscious, imperialistic kind of attitude. 
that you that you're like a king on a throne and these these people uh because they they live in dirt right to us it looks like they live in a different time period almost right um when you have that gaze about you you're gonna there are gonna be it's gonna you know shit's gonna happen marines and soldiers are gonna do things do illegal things and do reprehensible things and what you're talking about with throwing, you know, having kids fight over MREs, we did the same shit in Afghanistan. Did the same shit. And so you have a lot of, you have young kids like yourself, like myself, who have no, have a lot of them have never been out of the country. And they're sent to these places and they treat the people like less than them. And that's because there's no, the military is not a, is not geared to culturally prepare you for where they send you. They just like a pack of dogs. No, that's valid. And like one of the things I noticed when I got to Panama, you go into Panama City, you were pretty much looked at neutrally, except you were kind of eyeballed because you might have some money or something. You went to certain parts of Panama City, they tell you not to go there, so you do. And, and you realize people looking at you like they want to kill you. Well, it was 1990. And in 89, we had Spectre gunships go over parts of Panama City, and there were a lot of people that viewed you as somebody that killed them, right? Like, And even if you didn't, you were – if they hurt you, they were getting some kind of revenge. And then you'd go up into a place called Cerro Azul, where it was all rural, and those guys up there buy you a beer. You know, it's 20 cents in the bar, but they buy you beer, and they were just happy to hang out with you like like you were a tourist almost. And I didn't understand this until I did a, a little project with some combat engineers on the other side of the isthmus and kind of drove around in my Humvee that I had while I was doing this and went to a place called Fort Espinar, which is where the PDF were. And the 1097th Boat Company, and that, you know, like you talk about the jaded shit, like this is killing people. And it was called, the, and it was still being called this, the live fire exercise. That's what Just Cause was in the mind of the military in Panama, the, the live fire exercise. And I drove through this place and it was barracks. That were they looked like Swiss cheese, and the 1097 both company rolled into here with 50 cows and completely took these barracks apart with people inside them, and you'd see hole 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 hole, and then all of a sudden you'd see one about that big, and I asked the guy that's with me, I said, "What's that? You got a law rocket? What was the purpose of that they had them? Like, and that was a very short duration. That was a couple days that that went on." And you couldn't understand the people until you saw that. And they didn't exactly, when we came into the country, say, hey, let me tell you what happened. And, and like I said, I, I can't understand, but I can empathize. Yeah, man. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, uh, and you got to, and also people have to remember that what we're, we're not trained as like nation builders. Our, our training is just literally going out in the desert or, and you're maybe going out in the jungle going out in the field and blowing shit up. And, and, and in boot camp, that's what they drill into. You're going to go kill people. And I even had drill instructors say to me in boot camp, you're going to kill women and children. And you got to, you know, you're going to be okay with that. And so they just, all they do is kill, kill, kill. I mean, in the Marine Corps, it was, we even had a, we, so you could say yes, sir, or you could say kill babies, sir. Somebody says something to you, kill babies. And it's a kind of start. It's, a, it's a, like a sarcastic thing, but it's also it has an impact on on how you look at people when you go to countries. Well, and they sell it to the civilian population as being okay too. I'm sure you've seen this, the T-shirt that's like, um, 
join the military, go to exciting foreign new places, meet new people and kill them. And people wear that with a smirk on their face, not as a statement against it. Or like we had a cadence, napalm, napalm, sticks like glue, sticks to the mamas and the babies too. And then it was like napalm. And then you call back sticks to kids. I mean, and I wasn't in the infantry. And this is something I remember my first sergeant calling as a cadence while we ran in formation. And you've got 18, 19-year-old kids that are okay with it because they don't really know not to be. Yeah, one of one of the one of the things one of the cadences we had was um, I went to the mall where all the fatties shop. I pulled out my machete and I began to chop. So it, it's not just that you know napalm sticks to babies and all that shit like about about the enemy. It's also geared towards the American the, the civilian population now because there's such a military divide. It's to separate the whole training of the military is to turn you into a killer who's separate from the enemy, but also separate from your own people, from your own country. I went to the playground where all the kiddies play. I pulled out my machine gun and I began to spray that kind of shit. Uh, even though it's funny, it's funny at the time, right? It's kind of because it's so dark. and It's so disgusting. And that's how the military has just this military just operates on a dark, dark sense of humor but it still seeps into your subconscious for sure i've talked about this before with like social media and stuff and I, i've told the audience that like if you never were in the military and you see some of the shit that goes on between vets when they're talking to each other it's not for you don't try to understand it don't try to make sense of it because you can't grok it because it's it's a coping mechanism and I think, honestly, in the minds of the people that are doing it from command level is, this motherfucker is going to get shot at and possibly get killed, and I need to do this to him to help keep him alive and to help keep his people alive. I think they honestly believe that even though it's evil shit, it's the, it's the only thing that you can do because if that person is in a situation where they think about the humanity of the person in their sights for one second too long, they or other people die. And fuck, I hate admitting it, but there is some truth to that. Yeah, I'm, I'm conflicted on it. Um, I, I think that what I say in the book is the greatest gift that our drill instructors gave us was the gift of laughter. It was the ability to laugh at the, the darkest of situations. It was the ability to laugh at people's suffering. It was the ability to laugh at death you know and you could argue that's that is what got us through and that's you know that's what allowed us to be able to pull the trigger a lot of times but you have to look at the mission what we were doing in afghanistan the mission was not to kill everyone the mission was to win the hearts and minds and and build the nation of afghanistan up and so there's two conflicting ideas there's two conflicting things here right one is the training that we had, and the other was the mission. And so I don't know. I don't know anymore. When I look back at it, I don't know if we had, if that actually helped us, that, that mindset. Yeah, I would agree with that. And just for everybody, I'm, I'm putting up every comment on the screen, and some of them are pretty dark, and I just want you to understand they're examples of what we're talking about. The people doing it are like us. They're recovering people, and they're admitting the kind of things that were said. And I think one of the reasons that work like yours is so important, Miles, is 
if we're going to go to war, we should go to war with a clear objective because American interests are at risk and specifically Americans are at risk. And if you can't make that hurdle, we shouldn't do it because it's all I don't care if you do it is in the best way possible. It's fucking horrific. And the people that cheer it on, I always say it's the big foam, number one finger and shit. And, you know, watching smart bombs go in and take out tanks and thinking we do everything with precision. If we are going to tell the American people that their sons and daughters need to be put at risk and sent over, you know, we don't fight wars here. We always seem to fight them somewhere else. If we're going to do that and you're going to ask the people to support our troops, they should know exactly what you're asking them to fucking support. And you know the government ain't going to do it and the military ain't going to do it. I mean, the Army, the Air Force, and the Navy have not met their recruiting uh, goals for like two years now. I think the Marine Corps has. It's probably simply because the Marine Corps is so much smaller. Uh, their, their number that they have to hit is lower. And so they're not going to – no bureaucrat will do anything to harm their own objective. So if you don't have people like you doing this – then no one else is going to. Yeah, um, and 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 yeah, and and like this, like you said, there's such a divide, there's such a gap between the military and civilian population in terms of what they, because everything comes from the fucking movements. Everything that people understand about the military, about war, comes from Hollywood. And I'll tell you, there has not been, there has not been, there's been maybe like a handful if that, of films for our generation that are actually honest. And most of it is fucking bullshit. And so you need to cut through that. You need to show people the ugly truth. And, um, and that's all I can, uh, that's all I can really do, you know? And uh, I also want to say, to go back to our prison analogy, when you hear veterans talking in a certain way, just think of them as prisoners. Like, if prisoners, the way prisoners talk to each other, a fellow prisoner, about what goes on in prison, it's the same thing. Completely agree. I mean, that's 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 what it is. And I, I think that people have a hard time understanding, even somebody that's been out for 20 years, you're still coping on some level. And when you're talking to someone who understands, you talk differently because you're actually, like, I can't talk to people who didn't serve the way that I can talk about things with people who did, because I already know that they will not understand where I'm coming from, what I mean. Like I said, I don't mean to overstate my time. It's relatively short and mostly in peace. Uh, I'm empathizing with it at a higher level. And I, I don't know how else to explain it to people that if you don't look at stuff like this, even though it's hard to look at, then Making an informed decision about what you're going to support is ridiculous. You, it's like saying, I support a thing that you know nothing about. Of course, Americans have gotten really good about supporting things that they know nothing about. The average American supports a ton of shit that if you said, sit down, here's a piece of paper, do not use Google and write down everything you know on this piece of paper, and you, you tied them in the chair so they couldn't get up, and you left for an hour, you came back, it might write down the name of it. There wouldn't be jack shit in there. And, and we need people to be more informed. And I, sometimes I feel like it's pushing a strain, but it's it's the only thing we can do. Uh, your book is going to be released on, I think, November 7th? That's correct, yep. Uh, yeah. yeah. Is it? <laughs> it comes 7th. Um, 
it'll be unaudible and all that. And uh, yeah. And I've got a link right now for folks in the audio notes where you can pre-order a copy. Um, I, I really recommend that you get a copy, but I also have links in the uh, notes as well where you can either buy or rent the documentary uh, Combat Obscura. I think on Amazon Prime, it's like a dollar to rent it. So, I mean, definitely go take a look at it. Don't be afraid to know the truth. I find out sometimes people don't really want to know the truth. Um, one thing I'll also say, uh, you know, you mentioned the drug use thing in the, or you show the drug use thing in the, uh, in the documentary. When I was in Honduras, we had hookups with the Honduran infantry for pot. So much so that one of my best friends, a dude named Michael Timberlake, um, who looked like Carlton from the Fresh Prince, looked like a, like a doppelganger for him, took some seeds and planted it outside of our tent, put a little rock around it and was growing it. And, uh, and it's, it, it continued to grow until it became kind of obvious is what it was. So that kind of stuff, again, this is not combat. This is 1992, I guess we were in Honduras. Like, it's not new. And I was in an aviation unit in Panama whenever I wasn't deployed. And so we got drug tested a lot more than a lot of the tip. Because when people are, you know, some of the guys in your unit are like the guys that work on the helicopters. Well, you really can't have dude stoned. When he's, you know, checking the torque. Off. I'm like, yeah, I know what you're doing when you're like, you're, you, that's the mindset. We can't have this. So we got drug tested a lot, so much so that we didn't all get it at once. We would get, um, you know, if your last the last digit of your social security number is five, three or nine, report to the day room and pee in a cup. And you never knew when you knew it's about every two weeks, but you never knew when your number would come up. And so pot wasn't really a thing in the rear because it stays in your system a long time and you're really at risk of being detected. Well, some of these guys figured out that cocaine gets out of your system relatively quickly. And what they would do and crack was coming up back then, they were smoking freaking crack and they were like waiting until their number came up, knowing they wouldn't for a while. And they would smoke crack for a while and stop. Well, it's addictive as shit. We had, I would say, five percent of our company put out of the military for cocaine. And again, this is this is rear echelon. This is peacetime. This is an aviation. These are guys, you know, back then you had the 20 year career track and all. These are guys 10 years into a 20 year career that were, and people say, well, why? Why would they throw it? Because they're mentally fucked up and mentally fucked up people use drugs. That's why. And not just that, the, the military encourages, uh, drinking. They don't encourage drug use, but I, uh, they, they sure encourage drinking. And what comes with drinking? Drugs, right? And, and, um, not always, but I, I remember, you know, like you said, cocaine was a 12-hour drug. You could do coke on a Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday, not so much, but Monday rolls around. If there's a drug test, there's a good chance it's going to be out of your system, especially when you're when you're a young guy and you you know you're you're sweating, con you know you're working out constantly, you're exercising constantly, you're sweating it out. Um, so I would, you know, I would, I would. You know, I would do coke with the snipers when we got back in Afghanistan. It was it was easy to smoke weed because there wasn't any. They drug tested us twice, once before we actually set out onto the front lines. And then when we came back and we still got a lot of guys popping, we still got a lot of guys uh, getting kicked out. One of my best friends, my fellow combat photographer, got kicked out for weed and he had been on three deployments 
He'd been in for five years, and they still gave him the boot on his last year. Um, so if you're going to encourage alcohol use, and if you're incur- and you're like you said, make, making young men mentally ill to a certain degree, you can't you can't not expect them to to use illicit drugs. Yeah, dating myself again, but I remember class six store. The big bottle of Jack Daniels was eight bucks, and I don't drink it in the barracks. But okay, that actually can be worse. And I remember things like we were going to go out and club for the night. So the first thing we do is get two giant bottles of vodka. And dump them in a cooler in the barracks and throw either high C or orange juice or something and everybody just be dumping coffee cups in it and getting drunk before you went out. That was the thing. Drinking games were a thing. Every time somebody ETS or, or, or ended, you know, uh, or just went to the next, their next assignment, we used to make giant bats of trash can punch out under these things they called bohios down there. Like drunk was a way of life. I'm sure you've been in formations running on Monday morning and it reeks of alcohol. And, you know, you say alcohol leads to drugs. Let's be honest. Alcohol is a drug. And it is part of the military culture. And I remember we had one time they had this lady come in and talk to us about drinking too much. And she makes this statement, no one drinks for the flavor. You only drink to get drunk. And I raised my hand. I'm like three weeks from leaving country at this point, so I'm feeling kind of cocky. And I look at my first heart. He was out at 82nd. He had his vein like bulging in his head when he sees me do this. And I'm like, ma'am, do you put salt on your food? And she goes, yes. You ever eat a plate of salt? She goes, no. I said, okay. And I was in shit for that. But like that was the big thing is I was pointing out, I didn't know I was doing it. I was more being a smart ass. I was pointing out really though, that you don't believe any of this shit. Like as soon as you leave, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to be done for the day and we're all going to go get fucking drunk. One way or another, we're all going to go get drunk. And it, it, it's another coping mechanism. And I think going overseas, it adds to it because most your most of your foreign duty stations, drinking age is 18. It's not 21. So you're in this culture of drinking. A lot of, and I grew up in rural Pennsylvania. Drinking was part of being a teenager. Um, but a lot of the guys that came in, they had never had alcohol before or they had never had hard liquor. And I mean, and then it was like, new guy comes in, what do you do? You take him out, get him tore up as possible. You dump his ass in a cab if he's lucky. And then you guys go party for the night. I mean, that is a huge part of this problem, I guess. It is. It is. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not one, I'm not a prohibitionist. You know, I, I just, I just think you can't, you can't have two minds. The military has two minds about it. On the one hand, they give you a flask on the Marine Corps birthday, like the Marine Corps ball, we would all get flasks. And then they'd be like, no, don't drink and drive. Okay. Of course there's going to be drunk driving. Of course there's going to be no no drug use. Of course there's going to be drug use. Uh, You got guys having barracks parties doing butt chugs, like sticking hoses up their asses and and, and chugging beer and, and, and like doing some jackass shit. Like I can't tell you the kind of shit I've seen in a barracks party. I mean, it's just, it's grotesque. Okay, we never did that shit. I did once funnel a bottle of Boone's Farm wine, a whole bottle of Boone's Farm. Like, yeah, crazy shit like that happens. Let's go ahead and wrap up here. Let's just remind people to definitely check out your documentary and your book. Miles, thank you for your service. And I know you you know, you know, kind of mentioned that earlier. What I'm talking about when I say thank you for your service is what you've done since leaving the court. And informing and educating people is the reality of what combat really is. 
and the, what the life of Marines and soldiers really is because most people that cheer it on, if you want to cheer it on, I am for as much freedom as can be granted to people in the world. I'm for all the freedom, all the freedom. But I think if you're going to be for a thing, you should know what the thing is that you're for. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. And thank you to you as well for uh, speaking the truth on your end as well. Thank you. All right, folks, I'm going to wrap up right here. Usually I do kind of a closing segment. I bring an item on. I think with the tone of the discussion today, I don't want to bring a product on to sell at the end of this episode other than, again, make sure you get a copy of Miles' book. Go ahead and pre-order it on Amazon today. There's a link in the audio notes. There's a link in the video notes for those watching the video that leads over to where the audio stuff is. If you click it just now, this moment while we're live, there'll be nothing there because we're not done yet. It'll go live about 30 minutes from right now. Thank you, guys. Please tune in tomorrow for another episode. We're going to be talking about something completely different tomorrow. I can, I can tell you that. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Let it be a little bit of a surprise. And, again, I'll catch you tomorrow with another episode, guys. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month. You never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to think another face in the crowd. You don't have to live the way they tell you. Revolution is you.